So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality from the Acts of the Apostles in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. On Thursday, we celebrated the Feast of the Epiphany. In this commemoration of the visit of the Magi to worship Jesus and bring gifts, we remembered simply this, the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. It is precisely through Jesus Christ as the particular God-man that all people find the way, the truth, and the life. Epiphany is primarily concerned with this, the manifestation of God in the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. That is what we will be considering straight up till Lent, which, by the way, is coming. This is in itself an important distinctive of Christian believing, believing in the God who reveals himself. To some, it is a scandal that God seems to be hidden from our eyes, not pervasive in human seeing. Why is that? It is perhaps strange that God would only make this manifestation of, God, of himself in such an extreme fashion for only a relatively short time, less than 40 years. It is all the more strange to many that with two billion Christians walking the planet today, direct revelation is scarce if not non-existent. But we might say that this speaks to the power of this simple truth that the self-revelation of God in Jesus Christ is entirely sufficient. That the revelation of God through his word is sufficient. Today we remember the Lord's baptism in the Jordan. I have been to that very spot. It is underwhelming. It is unremarkable. It is as ordinary a river as one could imagine. I've known many people who've gone to the Holy Land for the very first time and they come back and they say, it wasn't at all like I expected. I went over there thinking, I'm going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. It's going to be so wonderful. I'm going to feel so close to Jesus. And then you're like, it was dirty. Well, what did you expect? It was a bunch of churches. What did you expect? It is a very ordinary place with a very filthy river with fishermen, etc. I can never remember my shock when I went to the uh, Sea of Galilee for the first time and saw jet skis running around. But on that particular day in the Jordan, something remarkable happened. The particular waters of the Jordan became universal. Consider what St. Ambrose says, that our Lord was baptized because he wished not to be cleansed, but to cleanse the waters that being purified by the flesh of Christ that knew no sin, they might have the virtue of baptism. Consider also what Gregory of Nazianzus says, Christ was baptized that he might plunge the old Adam entirely in the water. It is part of the miracle of water that it is one in nature. In every glass of water, every molecule has flowed down the Jordan many, many times. It has flowed down the Brazos. It has flowed down the Mississippi. It has been held in a human womb. It has gone down the drain, gone down the toilet. 
it is universal. How is it possible, you might say, to reveal oneself to many nations? How is it possible to make one people of many nations? How is it possible to call the church from the corners of the earth? How is it the case that God shows no partiality? It is precisely what Paul writes to the Galatians. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We gather together today to initiate five children into the great mystery of Jesus Christ, making them joint heirs in Christ, members of his body and inheritors of his kingdom. For Anglicans, as it is for all Catholic Christians, baptism is not only a sign of profession or a mark of difference between those who are Christians and all the rest. It is those things, but it is also an effectual sign of regeneration, rebirth, whereby those that receive it are grafted into the universal church, given the forgiveness of sins and adoption to be the children of God by the Holy Spirit. Here we see how the particular is coherent in the universal and likewise. It is here that we see how particular human beings are joined to the universal body of Jesus, God not showing partiality, but joining them to himself. It is for this reason that the gospel evangelists write of the heavens being opened at this particular point. We often skip over that detail, but as I was studying for this sermon, I realized that it is an important one that the heavens are opened. And I don't think I quite asked this question, but... It occurred to me once I had read Thomas Aquinas in the Summa, should the heavens have opened? And in fact, Thomas answered, he asked this question directly, whether the heavens should have opened unto Christ at his baptism. Um, by the way, if you're looking for an answer to something theological, it's in the Summa, just look it up. His answer is, refreshingly, that yes, it is very fitting, but it is also very interesting. And he lists three objections to Christ's opening of the heavens or uh, the openings of the heavens at his baptism, and they are as follows. One is that Christ need not enter into heaven because he has always been in heaven. Two, that the opening of the heavens is not understood to be either corporeal or spiritual. It cannot be corporeal because the heavens are impassable, and it cannot be spiritual because, he writes, the heavens were not closed to the human eyes of Jesus. And third, the true opening of heaven occurred on the cross and not at his baptism. To all of this, the angelic doctor responds with the simple scriptural truth. And he simply quotes scripture. Jesus being baptized and praying, the heavens were opened. He responds to the first objection, that of that Christ not need, need not enter into heaven because he has always been in heaven that it is to Christ as a man that the heavens were opened, whereas as the eternal Son of God, he has always been in heaven. One way of putting this is that it is in his person that the heavens and the earth are joined, and not to one or to the other. And for Thomas, 
the two natures always cohere. As to the second, Thomas says that the opening of the heavens is to be understood certainly as spiritual, but also as an intellectual vision. Christ understands that upon his sanctification of baptism, or what we might call his baptism of baptism, the heavens were truly opened to human beings. And so what happens? The heavens open. And to the third, he gives a rather brilliant response. Remember this, the third one is, is simply this, that Christ was, that the heavens were opened to Jesus on the cross and not at his baptism. And he says this, that of course the Lord's passion, his crucifixion, is the common cause of the opening of heaven to us. He doesn't contest that. But what is given in common, he says, must also be given to each one. Applied, in other words. And this, he says, happens in baptism. I love this response because many Christians today make the mistake of saying that the Lord's passion His crucifixion alone is when the heavens open for you and for me. Is there truth to that? You bet there is. But what Christians like Thomas Aquinas understand is that the Lord's passion is not only universal, but is also applied in the particular. In the particular. What happens in this sacrament of baptism Beloved, the universality of Jesus Christ, the crucified, God who shows no partiality, is applied to each one individually. It is as though each of these children is brought into fellowship with Jesus as much as individuals, as members of the body. A friend of mine uh, was was baptized as as a teenager and uh, he was baptized by someone going around and sprinkling everyone. You know, this is horrifying to those who practice immersion baptism. And that this exists horrifies me. You should know that. But, you know, I baptized y'all in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. No! Never! We baptize one at a time by name for a reason. This is, of course, precisely what Paul writes. As many of us, as many of us, who were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Not only were we reborn, but the heavens were opened, and the heavens will be opened today for these five. Not only were we crucified with Christ, and five will be crucified today, but we were also raised with him. And it is this that tells us so clearly that you and I are not left out of this particular revelation of God. It belongs to us as witnesses of Jesus to his death and resurrection to know him truly as members of his body. And so we cannot beg out and say, I wasn't there when they crucified him. I wasn't there when he rose from the dead. I wasn't there when he ascended to the heavens. You cannot say that. You and I are witnesses, witnesses in the flesh of his death and resurrection. God has showed no partiality. To put it simply, to be the church, 
to be the universal bride and body of Christ, the continued incarnation of Christ in the world, is to be a body of those who have witnessed this personally. Every time a baptism is administered, the particular person participates in this universal body, gains the benefit of participation in that universal body, and is made a member of the church Catholic. But to this, the evangelists add two important details. The first is that the Holy Spirit descends as a dove and a voice, and the second is that a voice comes down from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Some of the texts are unclear as to whether the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, bodily, or descended like a dove, but Luke today is clear that the Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form. St. Ambrose says something like this, that the Holy Spirit descending as a dove is to signify that peace is bestowed by baptism and prefigured by the olive branch brought to the ark by a dove, a true figure of the church and which was the only security from the destructive deluge. Why is it, we might ask, that God saves us? Why is it that God glorifies his church? Why is it that he redeems us? Part of the answer is to proclaim peace to the world. Part of the answer is to show forth his power in the world his power to save from that destructive deluge of death. Our own liturgy makes a reference to this, and you'll hear it shortly. And the reason is that Peter, in his first epistle, draws this connection, that baptism corresponds to the Ark of Noah, a refuge from the destruction of water. What is going on here? It is the gift of new life being given by an instrument of death. Who is there who doesn't know a victim of a drowning? Who is it that hasn't put on a life jacket? Well, maybe some of you, some of you people who don't follow the rules. You should know it. Water is dangerous. It is deadly. You know not to leave children in more than nine inches of water because they might drown in it. It's deadly. But what we remember today on this feast of the baptism is that Jesus has made that which is death to us, life to us. It is not a mere sign. There is much more to it. But here is the other reason for the descent of the Holy Spirit in bodily form as a dove. It is to show forth the triune unity between the Son of God and the person of the Holy Spirit, a unity that is not given in this moment of the Lord's baptism, as the adoptionist heretics say, but has eternally been the case and always will be. The adoptionist erred by saying that Jesus became Lord, became Christ, became God at his baptism. Catholic Christianity says that Jesus Christ has always been Lord, always been God. It is shown forth as a given, not as a gift. Jesus is baptized not to be purified because he does not need it, but to purify. Not to receive the gift, but to give the gift. 
It is for this reason that he had no reason to be hasty in being baptized. He could delay it because every gift had already been given. He already had it in himself. For us, there is a danger in remaining unbaptized. For those of you parents who have not had your children baptized, I actually think we're clearing the slate today. Is that right, Father? I think we are. I'm very excited about that. Not only is it a lack of obedience, it is to be vulnerable to passing from this world without the gift of an incorruptible life. God may do what he pleases. He may save you. But we must do what we know pleases him. And what is that but to be obedient? It is in the beloved son that the father is well pleased. This is the word from heaven on this day. We use this phrase often in reference to this scene. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. In whom I am well pleased. But we do not use this in the, in the daily course of life. I don't bite into a steak and say, this is a perfect, perfect rare. In this steak, I am well pleased. I don't say, I am well pleased by this car or well pleased by this shirt. It is quite something else going on here. The Greek word here is eudokeo. In other words, it appears good. God says this, the father says this of his son because he is good. We Christians know this, that there is only one who is good, God alone. The father shows forth the unity of the Trinity by saying, in him I am well pleased. But none of us can claim this term for ourselves. We cannot have it apart from Jesus. The very first thing necessary to true discipleship is to recognize this. I am not good. It's very popular these days to claim, but, but I'm a good person. But I love what, you know, I don't often agree with R.C. Sproul, but, but he said, you know, there was only one good person and we killed him. But here the father recognizes the goodness of his son. He recognizes the goodness of himself in his son. The particular goodness of his two natures in one person, the divine and the human, both being called my beloved son. The miracle of redemption is that through this one son, the many who are evil are made sons. The many who are apart the many who are alienated are made one through this well-beloved son. Those who are not good can be made good through partaking and union, through participation in his divine life. Beloved, it is this participation, this redemption, which is shown forth to us today, both in the back of the church and in the front of the church, both east and west if you think liturgically about it. It is initiation into the very mystery of the Trinity that we dare bring anyone before God to receive. Back in the ancient church, they called uh, actually the three sacraments of baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist the sacraments of initiation. It was to be initiated into Christ. And they did them all at the same time. 
fact, that's why we practice communicating those who've just been baptized immediately. Watch for it. We dare this. We dare do this thing, not because we think it's a good idea, but because God has commanded it. Go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And what does he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We come to the gift of new life through water. We come to this altar in remembrance of Jesus because it is commanded. And therefore we do so in confidence, in faith, and in hope, praying that our faith will be confirmed. None of us is good, but through this universal gift of the Lord, we become so. We become sons of God by grace. We become partakers of his body. We become washed. We become sanctified. We go from being outsiders to being insiders, from being dead to being alive, from being alienated, from being disinherited, to being adopted. And in this, the living God is made manifest, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Today we see the gospel in the rising up of five children from the dead. It is to this that we are witnesses. It is this that we proclaim. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.